with Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Coast, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Ellaveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. I'm Marcos Molitsis. I'm here with Carrie Ellaveld. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Coast's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Today, we're going to be talking about... We're going to be talking about the Republican Party's embrace of autocracy, anti-democracy, because they, they've surrendered the battle of ideas. We're also going to have, at the top of the hour, we're going to have Amanda Littman of Run for Something, an organization that came out of the Trump resistance to help young candidates predominantly of color, to run for state-level offices. And they've been fantastically successful in diversifying, helping diversify the ranks of candidates and creating a Democratic Party that is more reflective of not just the Democratic Party itself and its base, but of America itself. So we're going to be talking to Amanda at the top of the hour on her organization's plans for this fall's state-level elections. We got them in Virginia and a couple other states. And also, of course, I think we're going to be talking about 2022 because, Gary, it's going to be the most important election of our lifetime again. Again. <laughs> again. It never gets old. Let's and do it, it again. And I'm not being trite. I'm not making a joke. It literally is the most important election. And, yes, they all are because Republicans at this point have surrendered trying to win hearts and minds. And what they're doing instead is trying to rig the system to eliminate democracy. And and I'm, it's not hyperbole. It's not me exaggerating. Gary, um, I was just, I was just, um, I think I wrote about it maybe even, but Republicans used to talk about America being a center-right country. And we used to be like, yeah, you're so full of crap because it wasn't. If you looked right. at the polling, if you, but at least they pretended to try to win the battle of hearts and minds of American people. They've completely surrendered that now, haven't they? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's two things they've got going for, for elections next year. And that is they're going to stoke culture issues, racism, anti-LGBTQ, uh, every every phobia that they can tickle, they're going to they're going to try and gin that up. Right. So but then the other thing, of course, is that they're trying to figure out ways that they can both on the front end and the back end of elections dictate the outcome. So obviously restricting as much access to the ballot box on the front end and then in certain states like Arizona and Georgia, and I'm not even sure I haven't even read all of what they're trying to do in Texas. I know it's heavily focused on trying to reduce participation in Houston in particular. Right. But in, in, in Arizona and Georgia, they've also got like a back end safety where they're trying. Georgia's already done it, stripped um, you know power from the secretary of state. And in Arizona, they're trying to do the same thing. So so if they don't like how the secretary of state is, for instance, handling a recount, the GOP led state legislature can just insert themselves in that process. They can just remove them. They, you know, in in 
Georgia, they've stripped the, the secretary of state from those um, the, those powers from that person permanently. And in Arizona, they're trying to do it just for the just for the rest of the term of Katie Hobbs, the yeah. Democrat, who is this current secretary of state. Right. Because she's she's been a total badass. OK. And, you know, and they they don't they are tired of that. And so they're trying to fix it so that she uh, can't defend the state against uh, lawsuits and that her powers are diminished um, for the rest of her term through 2023. So, you know, it, they, they, they have a front end and a back end safety uh, in many cases. And this, this is this is I, I mean, honest to God, you know, Democrats are trying to do the normal thing, which is to create good policy that is backed by roughly two thirds of the country in most cases for Biden's agenda and then run on that next year. Right. In order to turn people out who will hopefully be, you know, enthused by these policy changes. And Republicans are trying to do the exact opposite, which is just only only pick the voters they want who get to go to the polls and cast a ballot. And it is it is a you know, we've with the cut. It's nothing new, but it keeps getting worse. You know, their their block of the commission, the January 6th commission. That's just another cover up. It's, they don't want they don't want us to know. They don't want Americans to know all of what went into that. How, what kind of role Trump may have played, what kind of role congressional Republicans have played may have played. So, you know, the whole thing is a is a clench, a clampdown on democracy. Everything they are doing is intended to obstruct democracy on the front end, on the back end, in terms of the information people have to work with, et cetera. Yeah, as an example, in the Texas law that, that was blocked by Democrats temporarily, this thing will probably pass in a special session later on this summer. But at least for now, it was blocked by Democrats. And one of the provisions, just as an example of how Republicans are undermining democracy, is that on Sunday early voting, they limit the hours between 1 p.m. and I think 6 p.m. The reason that's significant is because Sunday is sold to the polls. It's when black voters in as, a, as an organizing tool – head out from after church and then go and vote in, in mass as a group. Now, churches, what, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, they get out at 11, they get out at 12. They are purposefully making it harder for these people to just, as a group, go out and vote. They're making them wait again in line. And they're doing the whole thing where you can't give people water while they're waiting in line, right? Everything is designed to make it harder for their for for core Democratic constituencies, predominantly communities of color and young people, because a lot of that is, is making it harder to vote at college campuses because uh, those are core Democratic constituencies. And then on the other end, you have, of course, the rise of the Q Trump uh, conspiracy theory. Right. And this is, I think, the reason that the that Republicans blocked the one six commission. I don't think they're afraid of what's going to come out because everybody knows what's going to come out. I mean, it's pretty oh, no, obvious. I think they are, I think they are afraid. I, I think more could come out. I really do. And, I think and maybe. Yeah. But it's it's it would be to me anyway, it'd be easy to sort of throw away anybody. Oh, Matt Gates met with Proud Boys before or uh, Lauren Bobbert or, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Like these are not people that are particularly beloved in that caucus anyway. It's a it's a fear that Trump's going to then say mean things. And I still yeah. 
again, we talk about this every week because I still haven't cracked the code, and I don't think anybody is has. Is why they're so afraid of a Donald Trump that has no platform. He's been deplatformed, has led them to lose the House, the Senate, the White House. Only the third time a president has lost re-election in a century, and it continues to be one of the most unpopular politicians in the country. And I'd say one of he's not the most because that 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 uh. That belongs. That crown belongs to Mitch McConnell. He's the most unpopular politician in the country, right? But aside from him, Donald Trump, and yet they are still beholden to this guy that will never show them loyalty. He's actively undermined uh, fundraising efforts by by party committees, and it's clear that when 2024 rolls around, he's not going to endorse or or anoint anybody that doesn't have a last name Trump or is otherwise associated with the Trump family, like a Jared Kushner. So I, I will never understand that, but it's leading them down this very, very dangerous path to autocracy. They're not even pretending to have an ideology anymore. They didn't have a party platform right. uh, last year. And this is like a little factoid that seems to get forgotten, but shouldn't be forgotten because parties are about ideas. They didn't even pretend to have ideas anymore. So this is a party that has given up trying to win based on ideas and like you said is stoking culture war issues some of them are ridiculous like the dr seuss um and the uh, mr potato head nonsense some of it is actually not ridiculous like the anti-transgender efforts to to demonize young young transgender people so this is all they have and this is what they're going into battle. And again, the question is, is that going to be enough to bring out that hidden Trump deplorable base that only seems to turn out when Trump is on the ballot? But we don't know if that's going to continue to be the case. Yeah, I mean, that's their supposed base, right? They're, I mean, it's just they're, they're like, I, 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 I'm always baffled um, when I think about what they're trying to do. I mean, it's no mystery at this point. But it, it's it, it's stunning and it's partly stunning in its brazenness. So, for instance, when you described what they, what the Texas lawmakers are tried to do and are poised to probably still do in a special session. Right. Some of those provisions were things that got knocked out of the Georgia law on the way to them codifying that into law, the Georgia bill on the way to it being codified into law. I, I think they got they managed to get rid of the souls to the polls thing. Some of the worst stuff that was in the Georgia bill, they managed to they managed to get root out of there. And it was partly maybe because the corporate, you know, players had some influence on the front end and also activists were up in arms. And so even after Georgia did this and, you know, the Major League Baseball pulls out and there's uproar across the country and corporations are making statements and, you know, law firms are saying they're going to do pro bono work, you know, against these suits. Even after that, then Texas comes back with an even more restrictive law. And the point of making a, an example out of a Georgia is to try to get other lawmakers to say, gee, maybe that's not the best idea for our state. <laughs> well, Georgia Georgia lawmakers did it anyway. And, you, you yeah. know, maybe they're just too daft to get it, but I don't think that's really true. I just think they are freaking brazen. And they decided this is what they were going to do. They didn't care if they were going to lose, you know, state revenues uh, in the millions, in the tens of millions, and in some cases, hundreds of millions. And they just went ahead and did it. So it's just brazen. It's not even, you know, they're not even trying. Well, you know, 
part of the problem there is that a lot of the economic fallout is going to fall on 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 Atlanta, which is dep- represented by Democrats, right? Like Marjorie Taylor Greene's district, way up in northwest Georgia, they're not going to yeah, any but, boycotts not going to affect them. No. Look, it, a Republican Party, I get your point, but I'm going to say this. A Republican Party that was trying to win would be trying to win the suburbs in bigger oh. numbers in Atlanta. And they're yeah. not. They're, they, you know what I mean? Like, you want the suburbs. And they've lost the suburbs in Houston. And they've lost, I mean, not not entirely, but they've, they've had fallout is what I should say. Big fallout in suburbs in Houston and fallout in suburbs in Dallas, too. And those are important things in Texas in some of these, you know, in some of the congressional seats and whatever, but in Georgia statewide, which is now, you know, a state that could kind of go either way. You, if you were trying to win by increasing, you, you would not be doing anything that upset the suburbs because you would be trying to increase your vote in those areas. Right. It goes back to the whole idea that they've given up on trying to win votes. Yes. And at this point, they're just trying to suppress a vote. You know what's crazy yeah. about Texas? There's something particularly just incredible about Texas. The first two examples you talk about that have done restrictions are Georgia and Arizona. These are two right. formerly solidly red states that really quickly became purple states. In, in, a, in a matter of just a couple cycles, suddenly, boom, they're both, they're both like evenly matched on a razor's edge. So there's a thinking – in their part, I assume that, okay, if we can suppress like two to 3% of their vote, doesn't take much, just a little bit, we can actually win those states back. That's got to be their thinking. Texas, on the other hand, Donald Trump won Texas by six points, right? This is, this is, a, this is a state that Republicans still win, is still lean Republican. So what does that say about the Republican Party's confidence in themselves and their ideology and their party in a Trump Republican state that has Republican elected officials top to bottom, has big Republican majorities in the, in the state legislature, a lot of it because of gerrymandering, but still, it's a red state and they're passing these restrictive voting laws. And that's because they know they're losing the demographic battle. They know they're losing the suburbs and they see the trends. I mean, Hillary, um, Barack Obama lost to Mitt Romney by 16 points in Texas. Hillary Clinton lost it by nine. Uh, Joe Biden lost it by six. It's coming down cycle right. per cycle. I mean, you had you had Beto O'Rourke only lose the Senate race by one point. Right. So these are these are numbers that that they're watching and they're thinking, oh, we don't want to become the next Arizona, the next Georgia. And they're not thinking, how do we win back the suburbs that we're losing? Right. It doesn't even cross their minds, apparently. Right. So arguably what they're doing in Texas is trying to lock it in before they lose those demographics. Right. Before arguably, if you want to make the anti-democracy argument, which is clearly what they're doing, then they're then in Texas. Right. Is that you go ahead and you try to lock this in. You try to suppress the vote. You try to lock in your power before you lose it so that you can just continually lock it in. In, in Arizona and Georgia, what they're doing is just stupid, in my opinion, because they're, they're already in that purple place. And they're one of the things that Republicans are steadily losing more of is the suburban vote. And Maricopa County in Arizona is like that is that like makes or breaks you in the state. And so, you know, to be doing anything that is 
that is pushing away the suburbs. And the suburbs are not white. They're much more diverse than what Republicans like to think of them as, right? Um, And what a lot of Americans still think of them as. They're much more diverse than that. The other thing is, is, and I haven't really gotten into this yet, but I do want to look at it. I saw saw a a Pew Research Center um, graphic. And when you look at voter participation, right, um, I think in midterms, the people who have college degrees and postgraduate degrees tend to vote in like the 80th percentile and up, whereas people who who vote who, who are, you know, more working class, middle class, I mean, you know, might not have a college degree and whatever, they, they are much lower in terms of their percentage of participation. Now, it's obviously a bigger number, but in the midterms in particular, I would think that you would want, you would not want to alienate people who are and who are likely in the 80 percent percentile and up to show up at the ballot box. Right. I mean, that is a that's a demographic that is much more likely to show up at the ballot box in the midterms, partly because of privilege. But, you you know, because of the, yeah. the jobs they have allow for it, they, you know, whatever, the flexibility. But you, you wouldn't want to alienate the very voters who are most likely to show up at the ballot box. That is you know, that is like totally shooting yourself yeah. in the foot. They've completely, completely given up worrying about who's being alienated and who isn't being alienated. All that matters is that Papa Bo- uh, Papa Trump is being properly worshipped. I mean, at this point, it's become a cult of personality. It's, it's so freaking weird. I don't understand these people. Tom from Facebook has a question. Tom Breuer from Facebook. He asks, how concerned do you think we should be that Republicans at various levels will simply refuse to certify Democratic victories. Carrie, how concerned are you? Concerned. Super so concerned. concerned. 100% so concerned. concerned. Yeah, totally <laughs> concerned. Listen, we were talking about this in Slack today. You know, you got you got people like on the right side of the spectrum, Bill Crystal, you know, saying we should be concerned about autocracy and a potential dictatorship. I can't remember exactly what his tweet was, but he was he was promoting a piece that was talking about this very issue. We should be concerned. I mean, here here is and and I wrote a piece over the weekend um, on Saturday saying it's never too early to invest in 2022, okay? Early money is good money. Early activism is good activism. And I don't want anyone to leave this conversation feeling like they don't have agency. You can go to that piece that I wrote, click on my profile at Daily Coast, and you can see you know, a few, few stories back. And I outline races that you can already be looking at. And we're going to, in the fall, do a series on, you know, grassroots groups that you can be giving to, to turn out voter registration. But the point is, is that we've got a problem both at the state level and at the federal level, where if, if they managed, if Republicans managed to have both chambers of Congress coming out of the 2024 elections, I really, really fear for our democracy if if a Democrat is elected to the White House, whether or not they would actually certify that person and, and certify the results of the election. I think that is a very valid worry and it's not a pants on fire like, oh, you're way out there. You know, when Bill Crystal and like I agree on something, <laughs> <laughs> it feels icky, but it's true. So, you know, Here's, yeah. here's sort of kind of the bottom line. 
the bottom line is that Republicans, like we've just talked about, have no interest in appealing to a broader audience. They've given up trying to win on ideas. They're not even throwing out ideas anymore. It's Mr. Potato Head and and Protect Girl Sports, you know, code for anti-transgender cultural culture war BS. They're not trying. Republicans have, Republicans have been big promoters of women's sports right. since right. way back. I remember a lot of Republican promotion when I was playing softball and basketball. Yes. And all for that Republican e- love I got, I just, you know. So, they were so, so in favor of equal funding for women in collegiate sports, totally. right? Mm. So they're not interested in winning any battle of ideas, but they're also not interested in giving up power. And so that is what creates the danger because they've decided, unfortunately, unfortunately, they have decided that it is easier to subvert democracy than it is to convince people about any of their ideas. Right. They're not even trying anymore. So that's why they're doing things like stripping secretary of states of the power to certify an election. Right. Because then they can they can do their own, quote, investigations like the sham that we're seeing in Arizona right now. Right. It's a joke. But it's a joke right now because it's after everything was certified and we've moved on. Right. Next time, they'll try that in the middle of an election when Mark Kelly is up for for a regular term. He's a he's a he's a senator that won in a special election. So he's got to run again next year. If the situation hasn't changed in, in Arizona, Republicans may be able to block his reelection. This is absolutely serious. And that's not even moving forward to 2024 and the shenanigans they may do in what's likely to be another close map. If you look right. at those 2024 states, uh, 2020 states, nothing's going to change, Carrie. It's going to be no. the same battleground. They're going to be just as close and everything's going to hang on that razor's edge just like it has in 2020. And in 2016. Yeah. And just to just to buttress your point about how dangerous the party has become, I actually, you know, and and this next election being the next most important election of our lifetime. Right. Is that Republicans have actually gotten more dangerous since Donald Trump lost, because instead of just sort of turning a blind blind eye to his attack on democracy and whatever. They've just taken up the mantle now of attacking democracy themselves. Now you can say, oh, well, they've always attacked democracy. Yes, they have. But I don't think as overtly, as uh, blatantly, as with as much precision and intention as you see now and they've actually, I mean, I call it fascist precision, the fascist precision with, with which they are now trying to undermine democracy is really stunning. And, you know, and we all know they had a choice to go a different direction and cut themselves loose of Trump and, you know, retool, figure out how to change some of it, the, the, you know. Honestly, they had such an opportunity because Trump had so disrupted what they stood for. That they could have actually said, hey, you know what, we got a bunch of options here. Let's pick some of the most popular, you know, things that we can stand for that are just a little bit different from Democrats to, you know, go on a spectrum from totally anti-Democrats to just a little bit different from Democrats and run on that. And they could have they had a chance to do that. And they just they didn't. And instead, now they've just accepted that minor, minority rule is the only way for them to, to go to maintain power. Yeah, I, I, I could sit there and write a, a new Republican platform that actually would be more safe for for uh, for suburban white voters, 
You know, you, you could go back to a little bit of dog whistle racism, a little bit, you know, because uh, suburban whites aren't immune to that. It's just so blatantly obvious right now that it's easier for them to say like, oh, yeah, I'm not into that kind of Republican racism right but you, you can you can if you were devilish enough evil enough you could come up with something that would appeal to latino voters more on sort of traditional family values and on sort of coded racism and it could be done but they don't care they don't want right. codes they don't want to wink wink anybody anymore they want well, that it- flat out bigotry and racism otherwise what they're they're Republicans in name only. They're they're uh, and it would take a, it would take a little innovation. It would take a little innovation. You know, I'm going to throw. I'm going to go do a complete non sequitur here and say something that is like outside of the bounds of what we've normally been talking about. But I, I listened to God. I listened to a podcast and I can't remember what it was called. But <laughs> but one of the points that was made in it was they were talking to. A young or a Russian who was, I think, you know, it was it was all about Russia. It took place in Russia. And they're talking to a, a young Russian who was saying, I really thought that when the wall came down, that we would become more like you. And instead, it seems like America has become more like us. The Russian disinformation and chaos machine that is now we are living with as a culture, you know, the conspiracy theories, the constant disinformation, whatever, like this is this we 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 are now struggling with something that. Russia struggled with for years and and the Russian state used against its own people for, for years, disinformation and chaos. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't even remember how this related back. I mean, do you remember where I was going? This must no, be yeah, but but I have no I mean, idea. This is it's all <laughs> it's all relevant to the fact that that their Republicans are surrendering on democracy. And, and it's no accident that Donald Trump worships Putin. He doesn't want yeah. to mess with democracy. He doesn't want to mess with elections. He doesn't want to mess with critics. I mean, you think Donald Trump would love to poison his critics and throw them off balconies, you know, right. Russian style. So this is this is where the Republican Party is going. Right. And at this point, nobody, even even like the most clueless DC pundits are finally starting to realize that this is what the Republican Party has become they're not hiding it nobody's gonna be like oh we were bamboozled when a coup i mean you had michael flynn who was who's you know big trumpy he was his national security advisor for some time who literally just endorsed a coup literally said we need one of those coups and there's a whole q q conspiracy theory floating around that there's going to be a coup in august and trump will be back in office as though that is how it works and it's to me it's less about the conspiracy theory and more that there are people who think that's okay because they don't care about democracy. There was, there was this, there was this sort of pretense. And now I realize it was, it was all a facade that all of us as Americans believe in democracy, that we believe in the ideals of the, of the constitution and the declaration of independence and that we were all, no matter how much we disagreed on tax cuts for, for, for millionaires and abortion, at the very least, we can agree that we were going to decide those issues at the ballot box. Well, it, I, it turns out it turns out what what white people believed was in white democracy. So that I mean, there's a lot of white Americans who believed in democracy for whites and not for other folks. And that's what we're finding out. Right. Because on the edge of 
a you know shift in power where whites aren't quite so dominant, white Americans aren't quite so dominant. That's where that's where we lose. All of a sudden, they were like, "I thought I believed in democracy, but now I don't anymore because I feel disempowered." So, or I feel like I'm on the verge of disempowerment. I mean, that's what we're running up against, right? That's why. That's why suddenly people who supposedly were believed in democracy don't believe in it anymore they suddenly think that they don't have their privileged position or they might not have their privileged position and as long as that's true we're not gonna we're not gonna be part of democracy yeah and this is this is why this leads into again the state level elections at the end of this year in you know certain states that have these off-year elections like virginia and at least into 2022 i mean we don't have a choice but to treat this election as an ex existential threat not to liberalism used to be oh no Mitt Romney wins if George Bush wins liberalism is going to suffer and now we're at the point where the existential threat is the democracy itself and where America goes you know maybe the rest of the world goes I mean we're seeing the rise of white nationalist movements or nationalist movements all over the globe yeah like like it or not we live in interesting times so Buck up. <laughs> <laughs> so is that, let's see. Yeah. All right. So Amanda is, is in the green room. So let's bring her in. So excited to introduce our guest for today. She is Amanda Littman. She is the co-founder of Run for Something. She is the author of the Run for Something book, and she has the Run for Something podcast. This was the easiest introduction I've ever had to make. (laughs) Amanda, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So, Amanda, we've been asking this of all our guests, and it's become our favorite question, actually. So, it's basically, can you tell us a little bit about your origin story? How did you get into activism? And then you can lead into that and how you got into Run for Something. Of course. So I was born and raised in Northern Virginia, right outside D.C. Politics has always been a passion of mine. I don't have like a sob story or some tragic, you know, thing that happened to me. I just I wanted to make the world a better place. And I thought politics was a really clear way to do that. So when I went to college at Northwestern, my sweatshirt I'm wearing, it's a little cold today. I got an internship my senior year working for the Obama campaign in Chicago. I was which campaign was that? The the presidential? The reelect. The reelect. Okay. My job. Yeah. Um, so my senior year, I was working doing online fundraising and volunteer recruitment on the email team. I was hired before I graduated, took a day off to walk in the graduation ceremony, and then went back to work the next day. Um, worked through election day, and we won, which was great. Winning is so much fun. I highly recommend it. Uh, <laughs> more of it. Can't, can't beat it. Can't beat it. Can't beat it. I stayed working for the president at Organizing for Action for about a year. I moved to Florida to work on the Florida governor's race in 2014 for Charlie Crist. Um, I then moved here to New York, where I now live, to work for Secretary Clinton's presidential campaign. So I was her email director, again, doing online fundraising and volunteer recruitment, and worked harder than I ever have in my entire life. Lost that one, as you may recall. Less fun than winning. Don't recommend that. And I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated. About a week after election day, I got a Facebook message from someone I went to college with. Hey, Amanda, I'm a public school teacher in Chicago. They keep cutting our budgets. If that guy can be president, seems like anybody can do this. What do I do if I want to run for office? And at the time, I didn't have an answer for him. Because if you were young, if you were newly excited about politics, and you wanted to do more than vote and more than volunteer, 
there was nowhere you could go that would answer your call. And that, to me, felt like a symptom of some really big problems in the Democratic Party. So I reached out to a whole bunch of people, one of whom became my co-founder, Ross Morales-Fricchetto. We wrote a plan, we built a website, and then we launched Run for Something on Inauguration Day over four years ago. We really thought it would be small. We thought we'd get 100 people who wanted to run in the first year. This would be our side hustle, cool hobby. We had 1,000 people sign up in the first week. As of today, we're up to more than 77,000 young people all across the country who've raised their hands to say they want to run. We've endorsed more than 1,600. We've elected more than 500 young people in 46 states, mostly women, mostly people of color, about 22% LGBTQ+. And they are remarkable. So what was going to be my little side project is now my full-time 200% hustle, and I'm really lucky to get to do it. One of the things I I love about... Every time we, we lose a presidential election, um, the silver lining, don't like losing them, but the silver lining is that it sort of births a whole new, you know, sort of mass of organizations that that sort of move the party forward. Mm-hmm. And so after George Bush won in, in 2000, it sort of birthed the progressive blogosphere. That's, that's sort of Daily Coast's roots back in the day. And they were supercharged when, you know, the Iraq war. And those were dark years, but Move On came out of that and, and Daily Coast and a lot of other sort of net roots, online progressive organizations. And and with um, with Donald Trump winning, unfortunately, the silver lining again was sort of the rise of the of the resistance and run for something was definitely a piece of it and a piece that was sorely missing. I always talk about how the traditional candidate used to be white, male most likely a lawyer, somebody who had connections mm-hmm. to money, and probably odds are a prosecutor. Right? Yep. That was that was the model. And you helped change that. So can you walk us through, say I want to run for office. I don't. But say I want to run for office. Somebody listening wants to run for office. What do you have to offer that potential candidate? Yes. So if you're thinking about running for office, you go to runforwhat.net. You enter your name, your address, your info. We'll show you all of the offices right now in 2021, but in 2022 and beyond as we get the data that are available for you to get on the ballot. It includes the filing deadlines, how much it costs, how much the position pays, all that kind of information. Then you would join a conference call with that our staff hosts every week. We walk through the basics of how to get on the ballot, what first-time candidacies are like, you know, all the questions that apologies for the dog, all the questions that first-time candidates tend to have. You then have a one-on-one with one of our volunteers. Um, There, it's where we learn a little bit more about you, and our volunteers have some resources that they're available to give you right up front. We train all of our volunteers with sort of like the, the basics here. From there, you're part of the Run for Something pipeline. We have guides on how to go on how to actually get on the ballot in every state. We have resources and training, some that we run, some that our partners run, with everything from how to write a campaign plan to how to write a budget, to how to raise the money for that budget and that campaign plan, all the way through to Election Day. We have a network of about 500 mentors across the country who will help you one-on-one for free on whatever subject matter you might have a question on. We have a big Slack and Facebook community of all of the candidates that we're working with. So you can ask questions and people going through something similar. And you get to apply for our endorsement. And our endorsement is another application. We want to see your budget, your win number. We do some vetting. And those are the folks that our regional directors work one-on-one with. So after you've been endorsed, our regional director will get on the phone with you and say, what is it that you need? Maybe you need the state party to answer your email. Maybe your field director needs training. Maybe you just need someone to talk to about these vendors 
vendor pitches that you've been getting and what the right answer is for who to go with for your direct mail firm. Whatever it is, our regional directors are one part consultant, one part coach, one part therapist. You'll also get matched, <laughs> you'll also get matched one of our alumni who've gone through something similar. So if you're a college student running in 2020, you'll get matched with a college student who ran in 2018. And we work you all the way through to election day. So in some places, we'll raise money for you if we can. We'll get you volunteers. We'll recommend you to press. We'll recommend you to partner groups. And then after election day, if you win, we'll help you figure out how to set up your office and how to transition to becoming an elected official. And if you lose, how do you put being a city council candidate on your resume? What do you do with the assets you just created? So it's a real soup to nuts support service. And so far, we've heard really positive things from the folks that we're working with about the kind of value add we're able to provide. My dog found her spooky. Dog. <laughs> yes. does, he ever, does he ever, does your dog ever make appearances? Because we don't mind an appearance. I mean, really, this is the moment that we could, that could increase our viewership. If we had like a great puppy moment. No, just a little too big for me to scoop up. Oh, okay, all right, all right. I, she comes by. I, I have to, that's great. That's great. That we need that support. You and you know how to support people, so we could use it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so I, I do. It did raise two questions for me yeah. listening to you, though. So do you guys? I mean. You know, you, you, you're obviously open to all people. Anyone could go to your website. But do you have a profile of, peop, of, of someone or an age group or anything of someone who you really love to get in the mix? That's one thing. And do you guys ever reach out to anybody or is it just people who come to you? Your first question, Run for Something only works with people 40 years old or younger. We only work with first-time candidates or second-time. We're not working with incumbents moving up the ladder. We want to be people's first entry point into elected office. We do only work with people who align with Democrats. A lot of positions we work with are technically nonpartisan, but we have a set of value statements we ask all of our candidates to abide by. Um, and we only work with people running for state house, state senate, and below. So no federal office, no Congress, no governors, no LGs. It's really the building blocks. So like water board and library board and mosquito boards and coroners and everything else really local but meaningful. Um, and as to your second question, we absolutely reach out to people. Um, some of it is folks who we find like, hey, this person wrote a really interesting op-ed or they're an activist and they've been recommended by a group or they've been recommended by a friend or in a lot of places now our alumni network, the folks we've endorsed and have gone through election days themselves will recommend people from their networks. So in many ways, we're rebuilding the old boys club, but it's mostly young men and young women, young people of color, young non-binary folks who really look like the party we're trying to be. So there was, when you talked about what you offer candidates, that list was long mm-hmm. and it kept going and yeah, it kept going. And, it, <laughs> and then I thought like, seriously, how did anybody run for office? And this is like mosquito board. We're not even talking running for the Senate or, or a higher level or federal office, right? Mm-hmm. How were people able to run for office if they couldn't afford expensive lawyers that had expertise in setting up these campaigns and to put it all together. And so it really is, is dramatic. The, the, how you shift that playing field just by offering something that was prohibitively expensive to other candidates. Um, so when somebody calls you, I, and you can correct me, but I'm assuming they don't know all this stuff that they need to do. They, they, they think the idea is like, I'm going to run for office because I want to make a difference. They're not even thinking, holy crap, I got to write a campaign plan? 
Yeah, I think it's one of the things we've really discovered is that people don't even know the questions to ask. You know, it's a, a campaign is a small business that explodes the day after election day. And most people have never set up a small business and don't realize that the hardest parts in many ways are going to be the things you don't even think about. Like if you want to file to get on the ballot and you have to contri- submit some fund, like money, you have to pay for it. And often many states there's a filing fee. How do you do that if you don't have a bank account? And you can't open a bank account until you have a campaign, but you can't set up a campaign until you have money. Like, how, how do you do this? It's, there's a lot of logistics involved in a campaign that most won't even cross their minds. So I do think it's one of the things that I have found to be the most illuminating over this work in the past four years is how many of the sort of unwritten rules that just by writing down, we've democratized access to. It's made it very cool. Yeah, I like that. Democratized access because that that's what happened that's why these candidates look different that's right because the system was designed to exclude them the structures of our institutions i mean that in terms of both the government systems but also the parties and the campaigns were not meant for people like us and that's a really big problem so we're trying to fix that however we can right what do you think what do you think it means i mean the the youth so I'm going to just ask a floater of a question here and see if you can grab something out of it, right? I just think it's interesting that, first of all, the youth turnout was off the charts in 2020, right? So somewhere, I mean, I've seen analysis. I don't think we have hard numbers, but but a majority of people aged, what, 18 to 29 or something like that turned out, somewhere between 52 and 55% turned out in 20, in, in 2020. And that was, that was at least a handful of points over what turned out in 2016. And then you've got these job approval ratings right now. And, by, and just to be clear, too, this is from Tufts University. I didn't just make this stuff up. So, you know, I just, I'm not just grabbing numbers out of the air. But, um, but you know, that made, a, that made an, a huge different, difference in, for instance, Georgia, where an estimated 188,000 more young voters backed Biden than backed Trump. And as we all know, that state was decided by a much narrower group of, you know, voters. So, and then, and then Biden now is at about a 59, 60% job approval overall from young Americans and among college voters, 60, he gets a 63% approval rating. And, uh, that, that in this particular poll was a 21 year high among college students. So when you think about that and what you guys are trying to do, where does, how does that fit together for you? Yeah. And when I think about the youth vote, you know, writ large, I think about a study that I saw from the analyst Institute, which is like the gold standard of democratic analysis the name, um, which showed that the most effective way to get someone to show up at the polls, like the most meaningful tactic we can use to reach someone is the relationship between the candidate and the voter is a personal touch from that candidate to that voter. And then I think about all the candidates we work with who are personally knocking doors and making calls and having conversations one-on-one with folks and who especially are able to enter spaces where there are young people, whether that's college campuses or gyms or what have, you know, wherever they are in these communities, whether it's online or off, um, and whose campaign staffs and volunteers are made up of their friends and their family and their classmates, you know, the college students who run their campaigns out of their dorm rooms or the 
the recent grads and, you know, late 20s, early 30s, whose entire campaign staffs are under the age of 35. Those folks have the relationships to reach these younger communities in ways that, you know, national and statewide candidates might not. But I do yeah. think there's something really meaningful about having a candidate who, who understands you, who comes from your neighborhood. And what we've heard from organizations that are doing, um, especially from organizations around, focused on organizing young people of color, is that local candidates who have a relationship and reflect that community are a really good sort of gateway for folks. You know, you might not think that DC can deliver for you, although Biden seems to be doing pretty well so far. You might not think that the Senate is going to deliver for you. Well, that might be true. But, you know, you play basketball with James. You know James from like, the YMCA every Saturday. He's running for city council and he's promising to make your traffic commute a little bit lighter. You want to show up and knock some doors for James? Like, that's really meaningful and especially for folks around the margins who maybe wouldn't be engaging in politics otherwise over time that really does build a relationship with the political process and with the democratic party this is something that um the texas we interviewed folks from the Mm -hmm. texas organizing project and they made the point to us because we were like how do you get people involved in these local you know fights when it's not that sexy and they were like no no it's the local stuff that absolutely is sexy that's the sexy stuff right so that people can see something happening right in their district right in their locale um and you know and every every voter who turns out for that local fight is a voter who's also turning out for the state and federal elections so anyway it's yeah so We've talked about how hard it is to run for office, how you've democratized that that um, that whole arduous process. Can you talk a little bit about the results? Like, let's talk about something less like, oh, God, it's so hard to run for office. Now let's talk about, like, what happens when you do run for office and how successful you've been in winning races and what that means for those for those people and for those communities that they serve. So our win rate over the last four years is somewhere between 40 and 45%, depending on when you measure it. You know, we have folks who the real race is in the primary versus the general, that kind of thing. But that is so much bigger than we thought it would be. Most first-time candidates, studies have shown, lose. We, in fact, inspected maybe 10% to win. And the first year when we were upwards of 40% was remarkable. Yeah, these so, are not traditional candidates. So you can't, no. you, logically, <laughs> you don't think these people are going to be half, almost half are going to be winning. Right. Um, yeah. We are about 510 winners so far across 46 states. We're still missing the Dakotas and maybe two other places. I can't remember off the top of my head. They are 55% women, 56% Black, Indigenous, or people of color, about 22, 23% LGBTQIA+. Um, they are the Virginia House of Delegates member, former member Jennifer Carol Foy, who's now running for governor. And if she wins, will be the first black woman governor in America. She's remarkable. They are Representative Anna Eskamani in Florida, who like single-handedly, along with her office, got more than 30,000 Floridians unemployment insurance. Representative Brianna Titone in Colorado, who was the first trans state legislator out there and also has been hustling so hard to get her constituents unemployment health, um, care. 
there are five or six members of the Texas State House who just earlier this weekend walked out uh, and kept them from passing some of the most egregious voter suppression. It also includes Judge Lena Hidalgo in Harris County, who was the county executive um, when she ran and won in 2018 in a come-from-behind victory as the 27-year-old immigrant who nobody thought could win. She has, I believe she... 10x the uh, election administration budget in Harris County in 2020. She fought hard to keep voting open. She has changed the way they budget in such a way that provides um, like flood relief and emergency uh, services to the community. And she's working hand in hand with the Harris County attorney, Christian Menefee, also a run for something alum, to uh, empower him to sue the state when they pass egregious voter suppression. Did they reach out to you when they first started thinking about running? Was, was, were you on the ground floor of those of those candidacies? Uh, some yes, some no. Some we got involved with after they got started. Some we got involved with before. It really varies. But all of them we've had sustained relationships with since the beginning of their first campaigns. Um, and some deeper than others, certainly. You know, it varies the kind of campaign they need and the kind of help they need. But they are to a T remarkable. And I think it's what makes this work sustainable and what makes it really sexy for folks trying to engage in local politics is you have this really exciting person. They run for office, they win, they deliver, and then you feel the impact of that victory in such a way that it keeps you going for future fights. And that's what makes it powerful. Have you guys seen, uh, maybe you mentioned this and I missed it, but how much of a ramp up have you seen through the years in terms of the number of people who sort of access your services since you, since you opened in what, 2017? Yeah. Is that right? Yes. 2017. It was pretty steady year over year. 2017 to 2018 increased a little bit. 2018 to 19 increased a little bit. 2021 is on pace to be our best recruitment year yet. January, 2021 was our best month ever. Um, which blew my mind. I, I will say candidly, I was really nervous that we would see a bit of a downfall, you know, like Democrats win, Trump is gone. So cool. Works over. As it turns out, the combination of um, winning in Georgia, which showed that anything is possible. And, you know, like a 31 year old documentarian is now a United right. States. Senator. He's one of us. And then the insurrection, which also illustrated, I think, how deep the rot is of the Republican Party and how much we have to fight back, how at risk our democracy is, has really lit a fire under folks. And that's compounded by the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020, which also illustrated how important it is who's in charge locally, from school boards determining whether schools were open or closed to, you know, police brutality and police accountability is a local issue for the most part. These budgets are determined by city councils and municipal governments. So I think all of that combined hit us with this perfect moment where we are now ramped up and able to help. We think we're going to work with probably about 400 candidates in 2021 and oh. from 700 to 1,000 in 2022. That's wow. crazy. That's cool. Wow. It, it your, makes your, my your side heart gig. sing. That, her side gig. Yeah, yeah her side gig. So <laughs> to me, this is so exciting because... And, you know, at Daily Coast and on this, on this podcast, we've been talking about next year being the most important election of our lifetime again, right? And we may be mm-hmm. in a cycle where literally every single, because it's not liberalism that is at threat anymore. It's American democracy is, is literally at threat. And I, I think we're, we're not giving the Georgia runoffs enough credit, Carrie, to, to 
building a lot of that momentum. So Amanda, what you're, you're talking about, is actually really, really kind of fascinating to me. And uh, the big fear, obviously 2022 is going to be, it's a midterm election. It's almost always, it's a base turnout election. And last time we had one of those after a first term president in 2010, we got our asses whooped, right? And we still have not recovered. We're still dealing with gerrymanders that were created after that 2010 election. So the fact that you talk about candidates being excited and we're still recruiting is another piece of evidence. If you're going to build a jigsaw puzzle, it's another piece that says, no, we're, we're still active. And that's critically, critically important because we, if we turn out, we're going to win. Yeah. We are our own biggest enemies as far as our ability to turn out our own people and keep them motivated and whatnot. So can you speak a little bit more about that, just if, for no other reason, to, to keep making me happy about this idea that people are really excited and engaged heading into these next two cycles, and the 19 off year and then 2022? I do. I think when I look back at the cardinal sin of the Democratic Party, the original sin, if you will, it's that failure to invest in local elections in 2009-2010. Like that laid the groundwork for the devastation that we are facing right now. And I do think that we are at risk of making the same mistakes. Like I am at my core an optimist and the, the work that we're doing and the work that our organization is doing, that our candidates are doing, gives me so much hope and so much you know, inspiration for the future. But I do see, especially from the donor base, quite candidly, some hesitation and some unwillingness to engage in places that not RVs as like hot and cool may not get you the ambassadorship, but are directly affecting structural power. So I do think we're at a moment now where knowing how hard these races are going to be in 2021 and 2022, especially facing the voter suppression, the gerrymandering, the inevitable disinformation, um, the fact that these maps are going to be probably 10 times harder in a lot of places, um, both on the state legislative level and the congressional level. That work started six months ago. Like that, to flip a district, we need to do 18 months to two years of sustained organizing and sustained communication. And that means we need money to pay for canvassers, to start running ads, to engage in like deep relationship building. And I'm really nervous that the funds aren't there. So you know, I am very hopeful and very optimistic. I think we're going to have amazing candidates. We're going to have the best raw ingredients that you could ask for in terms of cooking up a victory in 2022. But if we don't have every possible resource they need, and if we don't have the, the sustained level of organizing and communicating that we know it will take to win against such an incredible opponent, which isn't actually the Republican Party, it's the structures that they have built. Mm-hmm. I don't know, ma'am. It makes me very anxious. It makes me want to throw up a little bit, but I think it's possible. And I think it's a choice that we can make. We just have to make it today. Don't don't throw up. We want the cute puppy moment. But although, you know, if she threw up on air, I don't know, that could go viral <laughs> Gary, too. Gary. That had chances. No, let me just ask real quick. So last question, uh, Carrie. People, well, people can donate to you, I assume. So yeah. please advertise oh. where they can go to donate. But also, if you, you're talking about, do we have the resources? Are there other places, a top two or something that you're like, if you can give money, give to this place? Because I've been encouraging people to give to, to grassroots, uh, grassroots groups that are doing the voter registration and things like that. But I want to hear what you tell people about that. Yeah, so I would say take your budget, whatever it is you want to give to political causes, and split it in half. 
take half and right now set up a recurring donation to one of three places or multiple, you know, it depends how much money you have. Run for something is a great choice. You go to runforsomething.net slash donate. We welcome your contribution. Um, state parties are a really good choice. I know it's like not cool to fund democratic state parties, but state parties do really meaningful work and are you there year in, year out after the elections are over and do the kind of infrastructure building we need or look at an organization in your community that's working with either young people or communities of color or both. Both of those are places where we know that it just takes more time. It takes more people. It takes more work and it pays off over the long haul. Set up a recurring donation to one or two or three of those sort of categories and go nuts. And that recurring donation will help them know they can plan. Take the other half and give it to local candidates, whether that's state legislative races or city council races or school board races. Like I promise you, every Senate candidate in 2022 is going to have all the money in the world. Every House candidate, even the governor's races, like they are going to have every possible max donation they need. They're going to have all of the, you know, the rage donors, the people who just see the video on Twitter and click. But I know that the folks that listen to this podcast are watching this now are smarter and more strategic and more intentional about your engagement. Give to the places that really your money will go further and your your impact will be even deeper. And it won't be pissed away high price no. consultants and TV ads that don't change anybody's mind and haven't in years. Nope. And this is money that's actually going to go into building core infrastructure. It's going to bring people into the process that a lot of them, like you talked about earlier, Amanda, probably weren't engaged already, but because they know somebody or it's their neighbor or their college buddy brings them in. Once you get people voting, it creates lifetime habits of voting. Mm -hmm. So there's so much value in organizing on the ground. This is like the real grassroots. It's not those Senate campaigns. I mean, it's totally right. They're going to raise more money than God. Uh, you're probably going to give some money because we probably all are. But oh, right God. now, <laughs> right now, a recurring donation to organizations like Run for Something is really a, I would say it's an imperative. I think you need Thank to do you. it. Thank you. I, yeah. you know, I'm a little biased, but I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the addition of state parties. It's not something that I have normally thought of, but I think that that's important point that the state parties are, are there. They're not, they don't just come and go, right? They're there all the time. So I like that addition. Good. Yeah. So, something we don't pay enough attention to, but it's really an important part of the ecosystem. So. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. If you don't mind, I'm going to probably come calling again later in the year once you have some of your, your endorsements. So maybe we can talk about some of your endorsements. Maybe invite one of them on to join us so we can see the work that you're doing in actual, like what it really looks like when you have a candidate who is working to get elected in the near future. So hopefully you'll be able to come back on. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so very much. And I think you got one of the coolest jobs. So congrats. I appreciate that. Thank you for having me. This is my favorite topic. So literally anytime. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Carrie, we have a couple minutes left. Do you have any final thoughts? No, I just, I think we were just moments away from like a viral situation. That's all. Oh. Is <laughs> I, I, I heard that, that bark and it wasn't a cute puppy. That was a big <laughs> bag of fluff that maybe would have knocked her out in her camera too. So although that could have been viral too. I mean, that's the thing. That's the thing about puppies and kids, right? You get them on camera, you never know what they're going to do. They, you know, come in behind you in the middle of a shot and all of a sudden, like, you're a star for 10 years on, you know, whatever. So <laughs> you could sell the yeah. NFT later on down the line. Exactly. exactly. So 
her point though, and we're about to sign off here. I just want to make sure that the point is donate now. Recurring donations are incredibly, incredibly important. Even if it's like 10 bucks a month, it doesn't have to be a big number. It's actually better for the organization to have a, a consistent stream of money they can depend on, even if it's smaller than you giving a hundred dollars yeah. upfront. Like that yeah, and the- recurring donation is critically important. Run for something. You heard, you heard Amanda, like how, how is that not some of the most incredibly critically important work being done in our movement today? And, it, and whatever investments you're making now, a hundred percent compounds anything that you donate next year. Yes, ab- it compounds absolutely. The impact because they'll be registering voters, that network, that infrastructure will be available for the candidate you're trying to get elected next year. The train staff, the uh, it's, it's it's so important. So that's our show for today. Thank you for much. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to Walter Einenkel for producing. Thanks to Amanda Littman for being our guest. Thank you, Carrie, for being my wonderful, amazing co-host. And all of you, again, thank you for so much for listening. If you are enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at dailycoast. See you all next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at dailycoast. See you next week.